Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Hey, absolutely. Eric, you changed the world recently, um, and you gave us um, faster-than-light-speed travel, at least theoretically, right? You published um, a paper recently where you outline the options, um, how we can achieve that. And it's been so long, and I had many people here on the podcast who were very, very convinced that this barrier can never be broken. So I'm really curious about your thoughts, and maybe you can help us a little bit more how you came up with this, um, what did you do before, and what makes you so confident that this could actually be a possibility? I mean, I've been interested in this field for decades. Like a lot of people who get into uh, STEM as a profession, uh, we were all fans of science fiction of one form or another as children. And for me, it was definitely Star Trek. And I was really fascinated by the whole world that was set up, uh, by all the series and movies and whatnot. And I really resonated with uh, the technology that seemed to facilitate all of these things. And, and one that really stood out to me, you know, that was really the, the, the physical link between interstellar community possible was the warp drive. Otherwise, you'd be spending tens of thousands of years just trying to communicate across this uh, vast network of civilizations. And so this seemed to be a, a, key, a really key point. And as it became older, it became obvious to me that uh, someone would have to invent such a thing. And so it's been a fascination to see if, uh, if something like one of these uh, plot devices like the warp drive technology would actually be possible uh, in the real world. And it took some time in order to build the, the technical acumen in order to be able to pursue that. Um, but uh, the desire was always there. And so uh, what happened that, 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 uh, uh, that say, uh, 2021 or really 2020 became uh, the year that this uh, paper came out for me, is that I found the time to actually really delve into the topic. Uh, and we can, I guess, thank uh, the pandemic for that because I found myself sitting at home with uh, a lot of free time on my hands trying to find a way to uh, fend off cabin fever. And this project that I really wanted to do. And so I, so I delved into the literature to see what the, the status of uh, people who had passed had been because as uh, your listeners uh, may know, there is some existing literature on the concept of warp drive. You could say it kind of started uh, seriously with Miguel uh, Alcubierre in uh, 1994. When he was still a graduate student, he made uh, this Alcubierre drive, this first um, example of a, uh, of a mechanism that could transport uh, observers like you or me, people who move primarily through time rather than uh, space. Um, find a way that they could move effectively through this manifold of space-time, time, 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 uh, what sort of matter and energy would be needed to 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 source them, and so uh, this was something that uh, was still a problem in the literature. When I looked back into the spring of last year, 
And I wanted to see if uh, there were any loopholes, if there were any stones left unturned in, um, in all of the possible solutions to Einstein's relativity that would allow for both a mechanism that could transport things at arbitrary speed, including faster than the speed of light, as well as uh, have not, not necessarily need these exotic sources of uh, energy and, uh, and matter. And so the process uh, that I undertook to, to do that was essentially just start to delve in the different types of geometries that would provide these properties that I wanted and constrain down, come up with a set of rules that would narrow down that set of solutions uh, and these other constraints like positive energy and, and other things. And eventually I found a sufficient set of rules that I could construct uh, via computer simulation how one of these geometries, an example of one of these geometries, and that's what you saw in the paper last year and what's been circulated in the past few months in the media. So this is all very exciting. I don't know if I'd say I've completely changed the world yet because there's still a lot of challenges ahead to this sort of research, but it is very exciting. That sounds fascinating, Eric. When you published this paper, um, and it's been um, a couple of months since then. When you would have to explain your theory to a 13-year-old, right? Um, how would that work? Um, maybe, how would, and maybe we can be in that same position. How can we actually get to that point where we can travel faster than the speed of light? What is necessary and uh, what would effect are we taking advantage of? Well, we're taking effect of the advantage that um, unlike special relativity, special relativity is usually what we appeal to when we think of nothing can move faster than the speed of light. That, that's, that's relativity. That's actually um, not quite true. In the context of special relativity and the principle of special relativity says that two objects cannot move relative to each other at a single point faster than the speed of light. So this is a very local statement when we bring it into the context of general relativity. So because uh, moving from special relativity where we're all moving on this uh, flat background space-time, Minkowski space-time, and we make that space-time in the context of general relativity dynamic and reactive to the uh, matter and energy that, uh, that lay on it, um, there are a few tricks that we can take advantage of. Namely that if we separate bodies, there's no, now no longer a principle that says that the bodies cannot move away from each other or towards each other, being at two different points, uh, effectively faster than the speed of light. In fact, we see a phenomenon like this, uh, we believe, in uh, our own universe, uh, namely this uh, acceleration uh, quantity, this, uh, the fact that galaxies uh, very far away from us appear to not just be moving away from us, but accelerating away from us. Uh, this is a, um, a phenomenon uh, called inflation. There's also a, a period that we believe in the early universe where a much more violent form of inflation happened, where objects moved away from each other at uh, a rate that increased exponentially with time. Yeah. And Some of those other, other galaxies and planets, from what I remember, they move away faster than the speed of light. So we, we can never catch up, right? right. So we will never see that, see that galaxy. Precisely. 
Precisely, precisely, right. And yeah, and by virtue of them being further apart and this acceleration sort of mounting with that increasing separation, eventually they start moving away from you faster than the speed of light and they fall out of uh, what's called causal contact. It means that uh, you can't communicate with them anymore via something like a light beam. And uh, they fall behind what we refer to as a, a horizon, an event horizon. Uh, of a different type than, uh, say, you'd find around a black hole, but um, you know, similar in effect that you cannot, can no longer communicate between these two uh, bodies. Yeah. Um, and we're tr essentially doing something similar with the warp drive. We're taking advantage of something that kind of looks like inflation, um, a, a much more complicated form of inflation because it doesn't necessarily just inflate. It also contracts. Yeah. and um, use this to our advantage in order to effectively make some uh, motive device that, uh, that propels us through, um, you know, through, through this uh, space-time. Um, the Alcubierre metric is maybe the most intuitive uh, form of, of this concept in that uh, when you calculate what's called the... Um, extrinsic curvature. It, it's a form of curvature. It essentially tells you how uh, space is being um, curved in the presence of the higher dimensional space plus time manifold. Um, but what it tells you is for the Alcubierre metric, you have this nice picture of what almost looks like a wave. And this is what is uh, propagated in the media very often, that you have some flat region in the center of this warp bubble. Also can be referred to as a soliton because it's nice and compact in size. Yeah. Uh, and in this center flat region is where you'd put a, a ship or some such thing. In front, on the leading edge of the bubble in the direction of travel, you have this dip uh, in, in the graph that's most often circulated. And this tells you uh, that the, we have a relative contraction of this in, uh, extrinsic curvature. That's kind of telling you that the space is being compressed in front of the bubble. And behind we have this peak in the extrinsic curvature, was, which is telling us that the space behind is relatively expanded. Now, the combination of these things kind of gives us an intuitive feel that we are kind of making the, uh, the distance to our destination shorter and the distance from our origin point longer. This is, uh, it's not entirely accurate because it, this region of locally contracted and expanded space does not extend all the way to the destination or from the origin. Yeah. Uh, but it does give us uh, a, a nice intuitive feel for um, that you're essentially dragging yourself along by sort of pulling yourself by contracting space in front of you and renormalizing it behind you by expanding it. Yeah. Uh, now, other solutions are a bit more complicated in that, and the, uh, the interpretation becomes a little uh, less clear, but most of these solutions do have similar, all of the solutions have curvature of one form or another. The particular type of curvature that's uh, put in this uh, plot of this nice Acubietti drive wave shape uh, are, most of them are non-zero, but not all of them. There is one example, uh, one well-known example called the Natadio drive, where that particular form of the curvature is zero everywhere. Yeah, well, we, I, I know that was, that was mentioned in what I read about the white paper, 
it would reduce the speed of travel, say, to the next star system to a few years or a few dozen years, right? Instead of, I think, we, at, at current um, propulsion systems that we have, it would be a few hundred years, a few thousand years, right? Well, right. Current chemical rockets, uh, the, they're limited by their exhaust velocity and how much fuel you can carry, which the limit is the entire vessel is made of fuel. Yeah. Uh, and at that limit, you are essentially, I believe, limited to about twice the exhaust velocity, instantaneous exhaust velocity. So with current chemical rockets, we're talking about some tens of kilometers per second, which translates to tens of thousands of years to get to uh, Proxima Centauri, yeah. uh, which is you know, a, a bit excessive. Um, there are somewhat mirror term. About that. I think it was three generations, right? I don't know if you watched that movie. Um, pretty, pretty, was pretty... this with a like, like? Was this the with a nuclear rocket? Yeah. Well, they had uh, children. They basically they, they had children that are born in a, in a in a traveling rocket, so to speak, and they were primed and uh -huh. raised by themselves with no parents around. There's one parent around, oh. but he kind of dies early. And then the idea is that they will. Um, their grandchildren will actually be at the same age when they reach their destination. It's only about 100 years, right? It's not super long. And then the whole ship kind of falls apart until then. There's a lot of struggle, and eventually they make it. So it's, it's, a, it's a good movie, though. It's well done. Yeah, I think I missed that one. Which, uh, which one is it? Which I think movie? it's called um, Voyagers. The Voyagers. The Voyagers? Okay. I'll have to look it that up. Couple, but I believe. Oh, really? Okay, that recent. Um, but I believe the rocket probably used in that movie uh, was a, uh, uh, a nuclear rocket because their exhaust velocity is much, much higher. The, the energy levels uh, able to be utilized from uh, nuclear fuel, whether it's uh, fission, uh, fusion is obviously much better. The utilization uh, percentage is much higher. Um, but I believe, yeah, there, there have been some studies to say that, say, with a nuclear fusion rocket it may be possible to make the trip to, to speed one ship up to some tens of percent of the speed of light of course that would yeah, take some time and so Freeman the Dyson journey would take those, right? maybe a generation or two yeah yeah freeman dyson worked on the orion spacecraft he was one of the co-conspirators right and they had micro supposed to have micro explosions um nuclear explosions and that would propel them if they were controllable um and also, depending on right. how much material they take with them, unless they go, I don't know, close to a star and refuel, I don't know if that's so feasible. But um, it's at least it sounds um, it sounds fast, it sounds more more sustainable. But it, it, it never it was because of the, the nuclear arms treaty, um, it never went into any any testing um, from from what we know. Right. Maybe it's hidden from us that that part of history. Perhaps I do know that there were some tests of uh, fission rocket systems, uh, I believe, all the way up into the early 70s, but those were also discontinued. There are some, uh, I guess, uh, small collections of engineers and physicists who would like to resume those uh, tests, just because the specific propulsion of those engines is much higher than chemical rockets. But uh, I don't know what the status of that is. Yeah. Well, there's people who say we have these bases on Mars, um, and we, we communicate with the aliens there, and that's where we build all these rockets on the dark side of Mars, right? Um, well, maybe that's that's a little bit too much of a conspiracy. Um, <laughs> going back to what you came up with, it generally seems so. With, with faster than, than lights, we traveled. Initially, it all sounds relatively easy 
until we realize whoa, the amount of energy that's required. And often that seems to be bigger than the sun. And, you know, that's where the discussion ends because we don't know how to harvest even a portion of the sun properly, the solar cells here, but we are really far away from harvesting the full sun power. Freeman Dyson was working on something similar. Um, how, how does that work with, with your theory that you are suggesting? Well, my theory uh, is, I guess, also uh, impractical from a total magnitude of energy viewpoint. Uh, these The previous studies, previous warp drive studies, required, yes, uh, on the order of solar mass magnitude energy. And I'm not just talking about the radiative uh, pressure of the mass. I'm talking about converting every kilogram of mass in the sun into uh, an action, actionable form of energy uh, e via e, e equals mc squared type of conversion. Um, a perfect but conversion. But not right? only that, was that it... A, a perfect conversion, right? Yes. That that's, has never been yes. achieved. Uh, well, only via matter-antimatter annihilations. Uh, the, the, those are the only ones that I'm familiar with. We don't use but them so often not only, these days. It's, it's a little expensive at the moment. I think yeah. some thousands of trillions of dollars per gram. It's a little out of our reach. Uh, but in any case, not only did the total magnitude of energy need to be of the order of solar masses, the sign was also what made it impractical. Uh, not only did you need that magnitude, but you needed to make it out of um, some media that we don't know exists in that sort of uh, that sort of concentration and that sort of density. We needed yeah. exotic matter, things with negative energy density, of some very you know astronomical size. Um, yeah. and we need to be able to make that. We need to be able to make it stable. Uh, there were some papers, some initial papers, um, I think by Fenning and Ford, were, they were the first ones to make the computation uh, of the Alcubierre drive to say, okay, it may be possible that we use properties of the vacuum, use a Casimir effect in order to natu make naturally occurring exotic matter. We essentially make the width of this bubble so small that we get a Casimir effect, so the local energy density uh, can... Um, via quantum effects become negative. And, but in order to make that bubble wall thin enough so that these would naturally occur, we would need to make them on the order of hundreds of Planck lengths. Planck lengths are, um, oh gosh, what is it? Oh, it's 10 to the minus 30 or so centimeters okay. or so That's across. It's, yeah. it's, it's extraordinarily small, uh, far beyond uh, the distance scales that we can probe, say, with the LHC. Uh, you know, some uh, many orders of magnitude beyond that. Uh, but you need to make that uh, all the way around uh, a bubble and say if you made the bubble uh, interior uh, 100 meters in radius, the total effective uh, negative energy you'd have uh, in um, to, to make that bubble in the, in the bubble wall would exceed the total magnitude energy in the visible universe by orders of magnitude. So it becomes extremely impractical, very yeah. much a problem. So uh, instead of making it naturally uh, occurring uh, a Casimir effect to, to fuel this, you'd want to find some naturally occurring stable source of negative energy density, which we may have some hints of something similar to that going on with dark energy, sources of inflation that we seem to be observing in the universe, but we don't know precisely what the sourcing media looks like. Yeah. Um, but in order to make that in such high densities and such concentrated quantities, we have no idea. 
it's much easier to say take things with positive energy density, uh, you know, atoms, the things that you and I are made of, and try and manipulate that to make very high density uh, dynamic uh, fluids in order to source such things. But before last year, we didn't really know how to make a solution that could utilize these sources and actually make a warp drive out of them. And that was sort of the, the impetus for me looking into, uh, uh, into the literature and, and making uh, the paper that uh, we saw come out last year and, and get published in the early months of this year. And just to be sure, with, with what you're suggesting in that paper, what is the amount of energy required just to go to Alpha Centauri? Right, 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 right. The energy question. Um, so the energies uh, are similar in magnitude to the old estimates, but the sign is correct now. Now we have positive energy densities. But to make something Understood. radius 100 meters go at the speed of light, we would need some tens of percent of the solar mass equivalent in order to do that. So, so very high amounts. 20% of the sun we would, we would need. Yeah, say, say 20%, right. Yeah. So something, some, you know, ten, uh, five times 10 to the 29 kilograms of material compressed into something that is, you know, 200 meters across. And that's yeah. to go the speed of light, not faster. Uh, in order to go faster, you need more energy. Uh, but then you could get to uh, Alpha or Proxima Centauri in a little over four years. When, when we think of this, and you know, we're obviously in the extremely early days, and that's, that's all theoretical, but just if we, if we take this all the way out, so we're going to be way more efficient, and it's only going to take 1% of the sun to travel that far, um, and at maybe an even, even better speed. So we, we, we make magnitudes of improvements. I'm thinking of the early days of the internet, right? We put all this fiber under the ocean, mm -hmm. and we thought, oh, it's not going to be enough. And then five years later, we realized, oh, man, we're 100 times more efficient, so we actually put too much fiber underneath the oceans. But, but so I'm saying there, there's going to be a huge amount of efficiency gains to be made if we ever get into a practical solution. But, I mean, we only have one really easy, applicable source of energy in our solar system, right? It's... It seems like still an amazing amount of energy that we have to procure, even if you get way more efficient interstellar travel. We're going to get rid of all the suns, right? If you take it from such a, such a solar source, it doesn't that's what it's going to be. But it seems inherently very limited. So if, if anyone comes up with interstellar travel, it seems to be we have to create. Right, wouldn't we be thinking, seeing a blinking out of all the stars yeah, in our galaxy. The stars should be going away. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, the equations that you make, they're right, right? You can't do much about it. The energy seems to be, if we are curving space just to go to the next star system, which seems to be a huge effort, there, is, mm. there shouldn't be a lot of stars left. If someone else in the universe sooner or later has come up with such a travel system. Right. So, uh, I, I would uh, agree that if we cannot make uh, extreme savings in uh, the energy efficiency of uh, these warp drives then if they ever become feasible that that would propose that would pose a, an existential threat to the rest of the galaxy yeah. um i i still have uh some uh some hope that gains in efficiency can be made uh far beyond the uh you know one or two orders of magnitude that uh, you just mentioned uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, something on the order of tens of orders of magnitude can be, uh, of savings can be made in the energy density. There have been studies, again, with, in the context of 
the Acubietti drive, the Natadio drive, things that already used exotic matter um, in order to save uh, save energy on the on tens of orders of magnitude scales. So maybe bringing this uh, the energy from 10 to the 30 kilograms to 10 to the 20 kilograms, 10 to the 10 kilograms, maybe even down to the kilogram scale. And if we're talking about a kilogram scale, then maybe we're in the realm of something like a fusion generator or even a fission generator. Especially if we say slow ourselves down for the uh, the prototypes, which uh, I think would be inevitable, right? You'd want something that is uh, both smaller in diameter. So maybe you are uh, putting a small, something the size of a, a small satellite um, into one of these warp bubbles and you're making it move, say, some kilometers per second in orbit. Maybe you're just having it change orbit above the Earth. Uh, yeah. Then you don't need nearly as much energy as well. Yeah. You can scale it down in that way, but you'd also need uh, sure, some other energy saving mechanisms stars, just to right? get there. That's yeah, that's where we want to go. We want to go to the stars because otherwise we, we can almost go there right now. I mean, it takes a little bit of effort, but maybe, you know, Elon brings us to Mars in 10 years from now. Um, w one of those problems that we have with traveling close to the speed of light is that time is so relative that the people inside that spacecraft have a very different perception of reality and how time goes than the people who haven't traveled. So we would never be able to return into the same time. I think depending on the speed, it could be thousands of years different when you return like the earth has either i never i always confuse who's traveled quicker but you definitely in a, in a hundreds of generations after you've left i know that's only for what eight year trip to alpha centauri and back mm -hmm. in your ten thousand years into the earth's future but with the warp drive we can avoid this and i'm curious how this works right so uh the the twin paradox that um that example from special relativity where you have Two twins, one moves away, uh, experiences time at, a, at seemingly a slower rate because when they return, the one that went on a trip is, uh, has aged relatively little compared to the one that stayed on Earth. Um, how the, so how this changes is because they change uh, reference frames, right? They start in the same reference frame, then one twin accelerates to something close to the speed of light, and you get all of these uh, dilation effects, they accelerate again to return, and then they come to a standstill relative to the original twin. Um, but, but Eric, if we, if we travel with the speed of light, the time stands still. We don't age, right? If It's not possible. Sorry, close but... to the speed of light. Near light speed. Near light speed. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I was being imprecise. But in the case of uh, the warp drive, you, um, if you were to recreate this twin uh, experiment, you start off with one on Earth, one gets in a ship, the bubble forms around it, and off they go, seemingly accelerating from the viewpoint of the person on, of the one on Earth. They see the ship go get farther away, but within the warp bubble, the, um, the second of the twins never feels any acceleration. They, they do not accelerate. They do not effectively change frame of reference with respect to the original twin. So the rate of passage of time locally for both of these twins remains the same because so space the twin curved, right? the, the ship is, is in the same position well, the, 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 space the, the reason why they're separating while not necessarily experiencing different rates of passive time yes is because of the curvature yeah. but so the twin that's traveling goes to proxima centauri uh the uh the curvature collapses so they can actually say look around 
And they, this twin has aged, uh, say if they're moving at the speed of light, the drive moves at the speed of light, they've aged four years. They've seen four years go by from yeah. within the ship. Uh, then they get back in the ship. They, uh, the warp bubble uh, re-accumulates, uh, and they come back to Earth to tell everyone about what they've seen. And they come back, and it's been total, say, eight or nine years. But also, the, pers- the original twin on Earth has also aged that same amount. So you yeah. don't necessarily have the same problem of being able to explore the universe, but never being able to tell anybody about it because your civilization is long since dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. I think it really solves a lot of a lot of practical problems um, on that. I, I guess, although it does it does uh, necessarily mean that in order to really see much of the surrounding galaxy, you really have to be able to accelerate faster than the speed of light, right? Because you're still limited by the passage of time for the people in the ship. So you really want to not just meet the speed of light, you'd really want to get beyond it 10, 100, 1,000 times in order to really um, be able to travel, uh, say, to the, the galaxy center and back uh, in a reasonable amount of time within your lifetime. Yeah. When, so there's when, still that what, challenge. What happens if we travel, say, 10,000 times the speed of light? So let's assume that's in, in, that, in that warp drive, that's in a, in a, in a future scenario. What happens to time um, when we, when that person that traveled comes back to Earth? Would that still hold true that time has moved the same for both twins, or would that be a different constellation? I mean, I think it would be uh, effectively true, right? You you can, of course, design one of these warp drives that uh, does have the ship inside experience some acceleration, so you do have this difference in um, in time rate of passage. Uh, but beyond that, no, they should match uh, fairly precisely up to, I suppose, what happens during the, um, the process where the, uh, the warp bubble is sort of uh, accumulating in magnitude. Yeah. Uh, what would be seen by somebody outside of it as the acceleration phase as the ship uh, you know, moves off. Um, and, uh, that, that is actually something that hasn't been done in the literature, uh, a precise mechanism for accelerating or decelerating one of these. Although I imagine because of the, uh, very, uh, calm nature of the space-time inside of the bubble, it would be fairly straightforward to maintain that throughout the entire process. So they wouldn't experience any acceleration. So the rate time of passage wouldn't change. Uh, but there's the question of, okay, so what happens if you are um, going to see a star that is moving relative to the Earth, right? You're going to have to, there's going to be effectively some uh, dilation between your original frame of reference and your destination. So you're going to have to match that in some way. And so there'll be some effect when you're exploring whatever uh, that star or other galaxy, you know, wh- wh- whatever your destination is, there'll be whatever physics goes on during that time. And then you'll have to reverse the process and come back. So there may be some effects from uh, matching the trajectory of your destination. But if we're just dealing with the plainest of uh, scenarios and the two objects uh, are sitting on a relatively flat space time and moving, um, not really moving relative to one another, you shouldn't really see that sort of impact. 
from you know what it sounds what it sounds like it's a bit like the stargate um universe i'm a big fan of the science fiction show and you, what what their pseudoscience so to speak is right so they have these gates and you basically go through the event horizon and you don't even have to move right so the the you're exactly being re-represented on the other side of the event horizon and it's not a beaming device you know it's not like star trek but it's 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 well, when, when, when I hear that, I feel like the ship is basically, it only has to move a few inches, right? Because space has moved so much around it that the ship movement doesn't really matter much anymore, right? And depending on how much you, you how you create that warp bubble. But let's assume we can make it a gate, mm -hmm. like literally something we have at home, like a home device. Yeah. You literally just enter the warp drive on your own, you jump into it, and you jump out on the other side, or it pushes you out, let's, let's, uh, let's say that. And we wouldn't necessarily... I mean, we can basically travel in a spacesuit, right? Because we are, we are in it only for a few seconds and then we come out on the other side. Do you think we can go that far? Uh, I mean, that, that's kind of the, the general uh, assumption that I put into my solution and, and what has been done with the other solutions is that it's a, it's a very calm area at, inside the bubble. You don't, you're, you're essentially in free fall, right? So like somebody out on a spacewalk, you are, have the sensation of floating, and even as the bubble forms around you or dissolves around you as you reach your destination, uh, you feel virtually no sensation whatsoever as far as motion is concerned. Our, our, our typical um, intuition about motion really is based on acceleration or vision of things uh, moving relative to us. You would have some sensation of seeing things move by, um, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have the sensation of acceleration. You wouldn't feel that you were being pulled or pushed or anything like that. So there's also no radiation problem, right? A lot of people felt that with, with warp drives you have huge radiation issues. Well, yeah. So there are uh, radi yeah there are problems with radiation uh, from a couple different viewpoints. There's the uh, the Hawking radiation. Um, issue that if you create a warp drive fast enough, uh, you create a, an event horizon. You essentially isolate the inside of the bubble from the rest of the universe. And that has its own just classical physics problems in terms of how do you, if you were able to make one of these things and you have, uh, and you have a horizon, how do you communicate with the rest of the bubble so when you reach your destination, you can actually dissolve it and, and rejoin the rest of the universe and actually uh, observe what, uh, what destination you went out to, to go see. Uh, and that's a whole uh, other uh, problem. Um, but having to do with radiation, once you create one of these event horizons, there is this concept of Hawking radiation, where if virtual particles are created on either side of the horizon, they will be out of causal contact and be unable to uh, annihilate with one, e with one another. Um, and so you get effectively radiation of particles that are created on your side of the event horizon and they can impinge on you. And there've been some calculations of the radiation that would uh, possibly result from, uh, from such a horizon. And uh, it's not good. Um, however, however, the I, I think some of these uh, difficulties can be overcome simply by virtue of geometry of the interior region, right? The the initial Alcubierre drive was very spherical in shape. The the shell 
the shape of the event horizon was very spherical, so everything that uh, would appear on either side of the uh, of the horizon would propagate towards the center. So the ship would uh, the the entire volume of the interior would be radiated. It's possible that if you shape the edge of the horizon in such a way, you may be able to create regions that are radiation-free. Okay. Yeah. So that may be one way around it. It's not necessarily uh, omitting radiation within that calm region altogether, but it's, uh, I think, a step in, in the right direction. Uh, there's another problem having to do with radiation in that you have, the, you have this shell that's moving at faster than the speed of light. What happens to things it runs into? Right? There's space dust, there's comets, there's all sorts of things. Uh, that it could possibly encounter on the way to its destination, what happens to those? Well, uh, with the, uh, the standard cubic uh, drive, it seems like all of these objects that uh, impinge on the leading edge of the bubble get stuck. They get uh, th their, their time rate of change as they move through this high uh, region of high curvature essentially they get swept up with the bubble and they move along with it. So you have this mounting um, uh, shell of, of energy on the leading edge of the bubble. And what happens when you then stop the bubble? If you're able to overcome this horizon problem and stop your drive at your destination, what happens to all this energy on the leading edge? Well, it seems like it gets radiated out in front of you in almost kind of some very coherent uh, pulsed laser beam. Yeah. Um, and so that could also be potentially very dangerous to your destination, mostly. Yeah. Um, but that might also be something that can be overcome via geometry that uh, in you could perhaps instead of necessarily catching everything, you could change the front end of the shell or change the geometry, not just the, the shape, uh, but the actual degrees of curvature so that instead of getting caught in the leading edge, you might be able to deflect it around. Right. And it would essentially come out the, other, uh, the back end of your drive uh, relatively un, uh, unimpinged on. One thing that I immediately thought of is when, when we now think about, um, I love how, 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 how detailed you're already into this, when we think about a faster than light speed travel, someone in this universe must have done it. And that's that's known as kind of the Fermi paradox, which which is mm -hmm. a paradox. It seems to be just a lunch note. But anyways, it, it's become became known as this. Others must have done this, and why didn't they visit us? And maybe when you when you talk about the issues that there are with faster than light speed travel, is it possible that some of the things we see in the universe are kind of a pollution created by other people creating warp drives? Think about black holes. Think about pulsars, cars. All these things that we see, maybe they are just pollution. Where somehow the warp drive didn't work properly is that something that ever occurs to physicists or this is just too much science fiction uh i think it occurs to physicists but uh, i also believe that there is a a mantra that happens in physics particularly in astrophysics as they encounter new phenomena that they are unfamiliar with they don't know they see some gamma ray source uh, some repeating gamma ray source or unrepeating, you know, so some new phenomenon that they're unfamiliar with what exactly is causing it. And I think some, for a lot of them, not 
some small part of their brain is saying, oh, maybe it's, uh, it's some uh, sign of uh, intelligent life of, of some advanced uh, civilization. Uh, but then this mantra also comes into their mind, okay, it can't be aliens. I can't say it's aliens. Uh, yeah. because that's perhaps, uh, you know, that, that'll get, uh, I'll get branded as the person who says everything is aliens. Um, and so they look everywhere but for a result. And so far that seems to be working out fairly well. Yeah. Um, but as we advance our own knowledge of what different phenomenon uh, we can uh, create uh, via technology, uh, like possibly this warp drive, we're confronted with yeah, questions, Fermi paradox-like questions. Do these things, uh, can they actually exist? And if they exist, and we can create them, why hasn't everyone else? Why don't we see signs of this? Um, in the case of uh, the warp drive, you already mentioned one, right? Why don't we see suns blinking out because we need so much energy seemingly to make one of these? Well, maybe uh, if these things are actually happening, there is a means of saving vast amounts of energy so you do not need so much. Maybe you only need uh, an asteroid's worth, you know, something like 10 to the 12 kilograms. Those are much more difficult to see, um, you know, uh, disappearing uh, from, from other star systems. Um, as far as uh, seeing the effects of, say, the creation and acceleration and deceleration and uh, diffusion of one of these drives, it may be that such signals are, are very focused. Um, that uh, instead of uh, seeing some gamma ray burst, right, which radiates in, in many different directions, fortunately for us, with such intensity that we, even being you know, light years or tens of thousands of light years or millions or billions of light years away, we can pick up some uh, few light particles, some few photons in our telescopes. It may be that these drives are, are very efficient in that they don't give off much in the way of uh, excess radiation. Yeah. That's also possible. I'm a little less sure of that one, uh, concerning, considering uh, some of my recent thoughts on how one would actually uh, accelerate one of these drives. Because not only do you need to satisfy uh, the Einstein equations, which are what tell you, given a particular source of matter and energy, how the space-time is going to react. You also need to satisfy uh, the a general relativistic form of conservation of momentum, or referred to as conservation of uh, stress energy, the covariant conservation of stress energy. You need to, um, if you're going to create something that, propagates across space-time, this thing cannot uh, just create uh, non-trivial stress energy out of nowhere. There has to be some equal and opposite type of reaction, right, in, in, a, in a covariant geometric sense. Uh, and what does that look like? That might be a possible signal, but precisely what that sort of uh, radiation or uh, or geometric disturbance, maybe there's some gravitational wave uh, given off by one of these drives as they accelerate or decelerate. Uh, I, I don't know yet, but uh, these are definitely things that I'm thinking about. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. well, what's great about but, the warp drive is it gives us the, the, the option 
that someone could visit us mostly in real time, right? When we think of, of, of long-term space travel, so far we always felt like, well, the time horizons are so far off, you know? We know this from light, that by the time the light gets here from a few million light years away, that's the, I mean, a million years have passed from the source where we actually got the light from. Mm -hmm. So I guess so far we always felt, well, the time horizon might be so different, right? We track aliens maybe it's relatively useful in a useful way, for 200 years or 300 years or maybe a thousand years or 2000 years, but that's about it, right? So, but the time horizon just for interstellar travel could be so easily just off by a few million years that it would be mm -hmm. very easy to miss um, that life that now finally can track aliens. And that's, that seems to be a very convenient um, way to get out of the Fermi paradox. But with, for, with the warp drive, right. you don't have this excuse anymore, right? Because it would be real, real time, so to speak. Well, you could, I mean, you still have that problem because right because maybe it leads me to this question do, do you feel time in the in the universe it is the same for everyone involved like is it necessarily the same or do you think that's that's what you think right now but this concept will change over time well maybe that's too much time uh, yeah there's a lot of different uh, times in there um well so yeah this is something that i've thought about on and off, you know, as a fan of science fiction, as somebody who likes to uh, think about these different uh, uh, possibilities. So, I, I would I would say uh, regarding things like the Fermi paradox and you know why we haven't already made contact or will we ever make contact if we ourselves manage to become uh, this star-faring species. Um, my my, yeah, my current thought is that it is very difficult to get to this point. It is very difficult to... Um, there are a lot of pitfalls in evolving technology and society in a way that uh, that is sustainable, that can be... Um, that, that, that is long-term, that won't necessarily collapse at some point and necessarily have to start over or, or worse, you know, the, the species that was responsible for it uh, you know, no longer exists, right? Or, or um, you know, they, they can't repeat the uh, so that they can't repeat this building process, technologically speaking. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if life does exist uh, in the in such a in such quantities that one might uh, believe from the Drake equation or versions of the Drake equation that it that these barriers may. Um, may be very high to moving to a point where you can observe, say via telescopes or whatnot, other civilizations, even though you're still bounded by the speed of light, uh, and, uh, and then transfer from there into a spacefaring civilization. I think that is a, a relatively large barrier. You have a lot of different uh, technological advancements that need to happen in a way that doesn't necessarily prove catastrophic for the species, such as nuclear power. Right. Nuclear power is a, can be a wonderful tool, but it can also be very destructive. Um, so it, it may, you know, prove uh, to be um, the key to interstellar travel, even if it starts off being in a subluminal sense using one of these uh, projects like Project Orion, where you have essentially a, a very large nuclear rocket moving at some tens of percent of the speed of light to nearby stars. Um, or if we can maybe create a warp drive that is powered or finds its source of power from uh, a fusion reaction, 
just a very efficient one and a very efficient uh, warp drive um, that uh, that the the society that builds this and is able to advance this and, and facilitate all this has to also survive alongside right yeah. it, you need to be able to um, you know cultivate uh, the uh, the the people or, or equivalent of people in whatever these alien civilizations look like that can make these uh, advancements in understanding and advancements in instrumentality and advancements in, in the various yeah, technologies and innovations. Yeah, but Eric, as you know, there's just so many planets and we know that the, the basic ingredients for life are everywhere. You know, we find, we have, I think there was bacteria on Mars. I'm not sure if that's really true, but there was suspicion and there was water. So the basic ingredients for life and their carbon atoms, they're all over the place. And yes, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you that there's a civilizational challenge, which comes with consciousness, especially, right? This is this upgrade to life, which is still a perplexing question to me why only one part of the primates got it and no one else in the in the animal universe can ever catch up to it seems really odd to me but let's assume this is the way and i mean that this is eventually coming out everywhere but the survival of this the, the basic mechanisms of the universe seem to be relatively simple in that sense there's an abundance of of, of energy and there's an abundance of, of probability that there must be more out there and yes i agree i mean there's always challenges but from my point of view, and correct me if that's wrong, I know I get a lot of flack for this, is we seem to be headed somewhere. Like we are, we are we're definitely working against entropy. It's more complicated what we build. It's more universe shattering by the day. You Nuclear know, power is the latest to it, but it's going to be way more mm -hmm. technology. And I feel we're headed somewhere. And people say, well, it's like the ants on one side of the room. They come to the other side. It doesn't mean it's headed somewhere. Yes, but I mean, we're talking about moving space around so we can travel theoretically only but maybe practical in 500 yeah. years ten thousand years whatever the number this is i feel we're definitely someone put us up to this challenge it's not randomness to me but that might be because i'm part of it right because i'm i'm, I'm biased but it just seems so strange that you compare this to ants on one side of the room making it to the other they're not headed anywhere it's random maybe maybe not it's 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 just a sphere. it's not a good a good analogy for me yeah, I mean, it, what compels us? Because you're talking to somebody who, for some reason, felt compelled to try and uh, make one of these, you know, earth-shattering inventions, theoretically. But yeah, um, these yeah are, I, I definitely. You're a real pioneer, Eric. You're a real pioneer. You have to do I, it in your I, I, first, I, 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 I feel right. Right. We, we, we <laughs> right. We have to. Um, uh, feel that we can be audacious enough to, to try these things and definitely yes. some of us do feel that way enough of us uh certainly although i, I do question that sometimes uh you know what <laughs> that uh, that i'm on the right track or uh, or the like but i definitely do feel compelled to um to try new things and is this purely an evolutionary uh byproduct right is this something that is just uh me uh or our species trying to better and perpetuate itself just purely from a fitness perspective? Um, or is there something, uh, is there something deeper going on? Yeah. Um, that, that, that is, that is a question I do not feel qualified to answer. All I know is that I do definitely feel compelled, uh, to make, uh, to, to make these improvements, to to um, be able you know, to 
facilitate uh, humanity to be able to uh, you know, reach further than it's been able to before in this one small way. Um, but don't I definitely you feel, do feel like that compulsion. But it's a gut feeling, and it's a gut feeling. Of, I, but I want to talk about it. It's I feel like, and it just goes back to to you know what Newton always has been saying. It's when you look at the universe. Doesn't it feel like there is a creator? Doesn't it feel like someone created this as a simulation? You know, you could say that, or created <laughs> it as an environment to test a theory or to to build. You know, with it's. I always feel the Big Bang is such a bad excuse. We're like, okay, we can't talk about it because we can't see it, and there's a Big Bang, and um, really, that's it. I mean, isn't there? A re shouldn't we really at least speculate about? Is there a reasoning that someone put us up to this challenge, and we are like this child that now grows up, and there might be other children across the universe? That's how this seems to me. Um, but obviously, that's a gut feeling, right? This, this is very difficult to ever prove the scientific theory. But it seems to me much more likely that it's all just random and the Big Bang was this random event in the universe never happened before, it can never happen again, and it will eventually deflate back to the Big Bang. It's all a little intentionally blindfolded. Yeah, this conversation surrounding simulation, I find very interesting how it starts off in a very technical viewpoint, but then almost takes on a spiritual uh, nature in the end, yeah. almost a religious yeah. uh, uh, context in the end. Um, very interesting how that, that how that has uh, has evolved um, that conversation. But in terms of yeah, the, the philosophical conversation around the, the origin of the universe, um, I I think it. Hmm, how do I say this? Well, do you feel there's only one universe or there's more than one? And that's, you know, a quantum mechanical actual theory that's being discussed. So for every single oh, right. make, there is another universe. Many worlds, many worlds. Um, well, I think, I think there's a lot to still be explored uh, in the origins of quantum mechanics. Um, I think, yeah, many worlds is, is one. It, it's, you very quickly, if you think about many worlds and uh, especially if you fold in string theory to that, that you have every available type of physics present in the universe by universe i mean all of reality even those parts that we can't see yeah. um that are, have fallen out of causal contact with us or were never in causal contact with us really um but express physics a little bit differently and may or may not contain life so that really all possibilities are presented or a simulation that somebody Something, some entity has fine-tuned this universe uh, to create life, possibly, or some, or, or for some reason that is beyond our comprehension. Yeah. Um, or, or it's also possible that our conception of quantum mechanics is still uh, very, uh, very new, very imperfect. Uh, that we don't necessarily have uh, enough of the pieces together to understand exactly where um, uh, quantum physics fits into uh, fits into how our universe operates, right? Uh, and because of that, I, I somewhat defer these um, these conversations a little bit. I think there's a lot more to be done uh, without necessarily appealing to anthropic reasoning uh, at this point. 
So because you could say, yes, the universe is the way it is because otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe it. Yeah. You know, it, 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 the, the, the parameters are, are sensitive enough that if they were much different, then poof, uh, you and I wouldn't be talking. Um, that, that is one possibility, and I suppose it'll always be there, but I think there's, uh, I, I think, I'm not completely satisfied with it. Yeah. I, I think there's, uh, um, I, I, you know, there are other possibilities, uh, theoretical possibilities that I think uh, should be explored before we, you know, in, in my mind, throw up our hands and say, it had to be this way or we wouldn't uh, necessarily be here. Um, and and I, I, I take a, a similar perspective on, uh, on the simulation conversation. It, it, it's quite possibly true, uh, but there's, uh, you know, there's only so, uh, so much one can do about that once one accepts that, uh, unless one then well, changes the I, conversation of, I want to understand the universe, or I want to understand the mind of the creator of that simulation, or yes. however you want to, to phrase uh, what we are currently living in. I mean, it's certainly just you just you just transfer the 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 you know every physicist I think wants to actually learn about the nature of the universe at least an astrophysicist and you know that's kind of the the and an origin motivation um, an original motivation and if these rules of the universe are they following someone's someone's purpose someone's plan or is are they all random well that's certainly you can debate about this, and that's, uh, I think it's very popular right now to say, "Well, there cannot be a creator," or if there one, I don't want to, I don't want to know about it. But you, I think, I always feel like this. Isn't there a little bit of a utility discussion missing, right? So, yes, the universe might be just this quantum computer that's all random, and we're just like we're like this part of a cloud. We're like in a, in a, in a big big server rack, and we just don't know it, right? It could be. Um, we are we are basically in, in a rack space of the of the universe, but maybe. This thing's got to have a purpose, right? I always feel like it's very rare to come across something in life. You don't know, well, I don't, none of us knows the purpose, but it has a purpose. And this purpose is often, well, it's, 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 it's boxed into higher order purposes. Let's put it this way. So there's a huge hierarchy of purposes sitting on top of pretty much anything that exists in life because usually it gets outcompeted or forgotten. From my point of view, I always feel there is there is some hierarchy of purposes out there. And that seems to be a, there's a utility, right? Something has to be worthwhile to be, to be existing. And that discussion never enters. I feel the modern discussion about the universe from a, from a I'd say, hardcore scientific standpoint. But that would be awesome, because I think it would make speculating and coming up with new theories so much easier. Or am I seeing this all wrong? Well, I, th I think kind of in the undercurrent of, of what you just said is this concept of when you're talking about worth and whatnot, uh, there's really still a very human context to that worth it from a human perspective. I mean, how, how do we conceive of no. worth apart from ourselves? That's, that's a much more difficult question from, you know, uh, from within our society or within ourselves. It's, it's much easier. Well, much easier. Uh, we what, can also what, get very philosophical about that as well. No, but, but I mean, what, what, um, what is the reason of time? Well, why do we have time? I, I don't want to. I don't want to say this is something that has to be walking on Earth. That's silly. But why? Do, why do we have gravity and gravitational waves? Why? I mean, are they just there for what? Um, so I think this discussion is useful. Obviously, yes, we cannot just judge by the order of our current 
planet Earth. That's a little silly. Hmm. It's a tricky question. I, we're definitely it, it is a tricky question, and and oftentimes we come uh, we come upon these uh, these phenomena like a gravitational wave or whatnot as a byproduct of uh, of our attempt to understand the universe. Right? Gravitational yeah. waves weren't necessarily the impetus for forming the general theory of relativity. They were a, a result of it. Right? Uh, the initial attempt was to uh, formulate, to fold in gravity to this concept of, uh, of the relativity principle. Uh, and then some years after, well, not many years after, really, I think it was only a handful, um, that uh, the, the concept of that you'd have this um, self-propagating radiation uh, type solution in the form of these two polarizations of gravitational waves, analogous to what you would see with the electromagnetic field in light. Um, that you would also see this. Um, and just trying to keep it, uh, you know, close to uh, human's concept of, uh, a human, human concept of, of meaningfulness, uh, we, pursue, we seem to oftentimes pursue physical theories, um, let's say, in, within the, the 20th century, uh, based on some sort of need for an explanation. There was some phenomena that we didn't necessarily understand. And we needed something to, uh, to fill in the gap. And there are a number of different approaches to do that, top-down, bottom-up type of uh, approaches, just you know, filling it in, uh, a common one that's still fairly popular today. There's a phenomenon you don't understand, it's a particle. Make a particle out of it. Um, and, I thought, and give was, it, I thought and, and, God. Usually God is, you know, when we don't uh, know the answer, we say God. <laughs> And that worked for us beautifully, right? But I think this is not what people dismiss religion with this. It, it's not, it does that 100%, but it, it's not... Well, it's kind, of, it's kind of been replaced. It, it's kind yes. of been replaced as, as our understanding of the universe has become more technical, is that explanation that this appealing of a certain type of, uh, of explanation, yeah. it's a particle, uh, anthropic reasoning. It's a, we're just in a simulation. Uh, it, it seems like uh, we're oftentimes uh, substituting uh, you know, one, one default explanation for another. And we've managed to stumble around, stumble through, and, and seemingly make progress. By progress, I mean able to come up with technical explanations that fit the data and seem reproducible and also fit new phenomena to a degree until we find another uh, another phenomena that uh, that evades us for that moment, um, but uh, but the reasoning just seems to be uh, largely. Uh, there are people who definitely go uh, a different route. They will they will appear appeal to uh, some other uh, type of reasoning. Uh, elegance is a popular one. Um, how successful that's been is, uh, is another conversation, but. There, well, there, I, but, yeah. but go ahead. Yeah. Eric, while well, I have you here, one of these things, you know, that we are all so super curious about is things that go faster than the speed of light. Because since Einstein, we have this, this speed break, right? Everything is suddenly so slow that we can't really experience the, the, the universe at all. And we just talked about your theory of, of creating a warp drive and how this could work. 
what else is out there where we know that's faster than the speed of light, where we are pretty confident, okay, this, this goes beyond the speed of light, and we might be able to either use it for, for transmitting information or for travel one day or just to see the, the end of the universe. Right. So there are a couple of phenomena, again, those that we don't completely understand that, uh, that seem to have properties uh, seem to have properties that are superluminal or non-local. Uh, dark energy appears to be one of those, right? It, it seems to have um, properties, at least as near as we can tell, that aren't necessarily entirely local, the, the types of interactions and whatnot, or um, uh, the, the very fact that it uh, induces this, um, this very global phenomenon of, uh, of inflation, on the universe yeah. uh, has has that sort of impact. Uh, another common one, uh, which is maybe what uh, you're getting at, is this concept of in quantum mechanics of entanglement, yeah. uh, various non-local uh, qualities of um, of interaction or or non-interaction really uh, of constraint with uh, within um, within particle physics. This is something that I've thought about some, and uh, maybe picked on from picked up on from some of my previous research with uh, with dark matter, is that um, is that we have this concept of a non-local interaction, or not? Sorry, I keep calling it interaction. Uh, we have of non-local phenomena within uh, particle physics due to how uh, identical particles from a uh, quantum perspective. Uh, how they interact with one another and how they can become correlated over very vast distances uh, due to their statistics. Um, how this could possibly be used for something like communication is, uh, is, is not well understood. In fact, many people believe that it, it cannot, that uh, either by uh, some arguments of of, rel uh, of relativity, uh, that you aren't actually transmitting, well, some arguments of information there, you aren't actually transmitting information. Say if you have the, the classical Bell spins example where you have some uh, quantity of known spin or some particle of known spin, say spin zero, and it's a massive particle that decays into two smaller particles uh, with entangled spin. So say one has spin up in some uh, orientation, the other one would necessarily have to have spin down to conserve total angular momentum. Uh, and then these two particles, because they have excess energy, propagate away from each other very quickly. Not necessarily faster than the speed of light, but, um, but say you have a detector at one of the uh, ends of some experimental hallway and you want to detect uh, what the spin is. Uh, once you detect the spin, once you specify the spin of one of those decay products, you know what the other spin is. But did you actually transmit information? Could you actually manipulate the spin? Or did you merely detect the spin? The, the difference between transmitting information and uh, using this non-local effect, or it just being a purely um, observational non-local effect, really seems to rest with, can you dictate what spin it had? Because if you can, you, uh, if you can say, okay, I'm going to make sure the spin of this byproduct is up, 
the other one is down. And if you can make the next one down, up, 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 down, you can then start to transmit information to the other end of this hallway in a way that is necessarily subluminal or superluminal, even though the original products uh, of this decay never propagated away from each other faster than the speed of light. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if I, I don't, I don't really know the, the terms well, but I think the example is always made and you just condense it to a hallway, but the example is made that there's a particle, once these, these, these uh, particles are entangled, it, once it changes on one side of the universe and the other side of the universe, it would change immediately, would, would change as well in the same split second or you know, the same moment. Obviously, the observation is a whole other problem. Once we observe one, you know, we interact with two particles. So we only observe one, but we actually change two particles on, on two sides of the universe. That seems to be, it seems really stunning. Is that still true or is that physics doesn't, doesn't necessarily believe that's, that's what's happening? Well, there still is, so, uh, yeah, simple answer is that there's still an element of that, which is true. Okay. The, the challenges and, and where, you know, things get a little bit messy is, can you do anything with it? Is there utility to it? Yeah. Uh, from a, uh, from an information theory perspective or from a transmission of information perspective so, yeah. that, that, that that I I believe the uh, majority would say no. There's still some people who think that uh, it's possible, um, but is there some some significance to this effect uh, from a purely physics perspective as opposed to from an engineering perspective? I would say yes. And uh, my you know I, I've I've done a little bit of thinking of this in uh, with respect to dark matter, and if your dark matter uh, necessarily is this highly correlated fluid, what would that would mean for the structure of the universe or structure, say, of our galaxy. Um, but that's, uh, that's a bit different than necessarily transmitting information from one end of the galaxy to the other. You need to have that level of control over what one of the particles on one side was doing uh, and you know, such that you could effectively uh, not just know what the particle on the other side is doing, but also... Um, transmit a message to whomever might be observing that other particle. Yeah, Addison, it just seems such a hopeful message that, that this this is even that this is so I, cool, it, right? Because Einstein, as much as he's a genius, he kind of is a big downer, right? Maybe you can help me understand the concept of dark matter a little better, right? We just refer to it as dark energy, dark matter. What do we know about it? Is that something that is we we, we can't see it, and it's it's is it something that it's really inside our, uni our universe or we feel like, well, what do we know about it and how does it actually work? And does it, does it, is it bound by the same relativity, relativity concept that we know from light? Uh, let's see. So yeah, the uh, concepts of dark energy and dark matter, you can consider the term dark, maybe not to be as much of a technical term as maybe just uh, insight into uh, our knowledge of these things, dark as in we, we don't really know much. We're in the dark on these. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is kind of in the, uh, in the vein of, um, of, you know, make a particle out of it. Uh, not, not quite to that extent, 
but, uh, but similar too. In terms of phenomena that we seem to observe, we don't entirely understand, and this is our way of trying to, to reconcile um, observations with our understanding. So the observations uh, actually for uh, dark matter uh, occurred first. So back in uh, the 1930s, uh, there were a number of observations of, at first, galaxy clusters. So the hierarchy of structure in our universe um, extends you know, to, from sol gaseous nebulas, solar systems, um, entire galaxies, and then collections of galaxies. These are the structures that we can see. Structure, uh, collections of galaxies and also voids in between galaxies that can also be uh, quite, quite uh, voluminous. Um, and so in the 1930s, these, uh, these clusters of galaxies were uh, observed for their kinematical properties. How fast are they moving relative to each other uh, to try and determine, say, how massive one of these uh, clusters would be. And uh, it was found, um, and this uh, research was uh, done initially by uh, Fred uh, Zwicky uh, and uh, his collaborators, that the amount of mass that would be necessary to keep one of these bodies uh, virially bound, or essentially bound by its own gravity, um, was approximately 100 times or more greater than the amount of mass that you would estimate based on the amount of light that was given off by each of these galaxies and mapped to uh, a certain mass. So if, it, if a certain galaxy was so bright, it, uh, you, there's this little table that you could look up, okay, it's, uh, or a graph you could look up, and oh, it's, you know, this uh, galaxy would be 10 to the 9 solar masses. Yeah. Um, based on the total number of stars, it was thought that uh, would make up that galaxy. But there was this huge disconnect between how much mass you could see and how much mass you couldn't. This mass appeared to be dark, or not just dark, but invisible, perhaps. Right, depending on your precise model. It, it's possible that you could actually see through it, uh, depending on what it was made out of. Um, and so this, uh, these observations uh, then extended from clusters of galaxies down in scale to individual galaxies with these famous rotation curves, that if you were to take the total mass that you'd observe in a galaxy like Andromeda, and you were to map out that mass density from the visible matter, and just according to that, plot the rotation curve that you would expect from that matter of a, of a fictitious body rotating around that center, you'd expect because the galaxies are very centrally dense that, and very compact that you'd have this curve that would go up to some maximum value and then drop back down to zero. So the stars on the edge of the galaxy would be rotating very slowly, which you could also observe via Doppler shifts, relativistic effect, how fast these uh, bodies are actually moving, and the actual rotation curve had this initial increase towards the center, but then it flattened out and stayed relatively constant quite far out, uh, indicating that um, either our concept of, of gravity was incorrect on these scales, or there was some other material present in that galaxy that was... Um, also uh, gravitating and uh, creating a, a more intense gravitational field uh, within the galaxy and especially out in these outer reaches of the galaxy that required these bodies to move that much faster in order to maintain their uh, radial displacement from the center of the galaxy. Um, 
and uh, and and there's been a lot of other mounting evidence about why we think that there there's something either wrong with gravity or there's another form of matter present in the universe that we cannot see. Similarly with yeah. uh, dark energy, we have these acceleration uh, and we believe that there might be some media uh, present in the universe with very different properties from matter that's causing this inflation type uh, behavior in our uh, universe today. Uh, but focusing in on dark matter, um, having you know these possible options of, of uh, something wrong with our theory of gravity or some new uh, material present, uh, a lot of focus has actually gone on there's some new material present that we don't necessarily understand. Uh, what could it be? And there have been many, many theories put out uh, ranging from it's a new fundamental particle to it's a bunch of black holes that are individually very small, but they're so numerous that we, uh, we can't uh, really see them. They don't necessarily have large accretion disks that are radiating that we could see surrounding them. Um, my, uh, the, the research that I've done has been uh, more on the, there's a new fundamental particle uh, in, in the physics of our universe that uh, we have yet to observe, but can exhibit these properties. And more specifically than that, I've been thinking about the axion. Yeah. Uh, the axion's a very uh, particular one. You had a question? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just listening. Um, I'm, I, don't, I don't know enough okay. about it. I know what, what, what I was hoping for, and, you know, obviously we, you already indicated that this is all just work in progress. What I was hoping for is that a lot of this dark matter, if it exists, might be not bound by 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 light, right? So, in the sense of it, it doesn't. It gives us a way out of this to speak, right? But that might be or might not be the matter. We just don't know enough about it, right? Well, I, as far as a possible new source of media that would have exotic properties, that could possibly. Uh, get us beyond the speed of light barrier based purely on its properties, on, on the material properties of that one source, uh, it would most likely be what most likely be with dark energy. If dark energy actually does turn out to be some uh, new fundamental field in, uh, in physics, a physical field, yeah. as opposed to a field of study. Uh, of course, it would be a field of study energy? if we... Yeah. Do, do we see it also in, in our galaxy, or is that something we only see from afar? Uh, well, so, so, so dark energy, um, in order to have the properties, uh, to imbue the, our uh, current universe with the properties we think it does, would have to be very diffuse. In fact, it, wouldn't it would uh, interact, it, it would gravitationally interact with itself, but the way it would interact is very different from how we would think about matter. If we have matter, it's attracted to other matter right you'd have it you'd expect it to collapse locally uh it turns out that uh this dark energy um any perturbations in it that might cause it to collapse if it had some uh nice uh classical mass and it had some uh, lagrangian that very much looked like um looked like standard matter um it does not appear to act that way it appears that if you were to give uh various um uh, perturbations to whatever the dark energy field is, 
that these perturbations would dissipate. They would be repelled from uh, the, the regions of higher energy density in the dark energy field would dissipate. They would all flatten out and we'd have this very diffuse field throughout the visible universe. And so um, to answer your question, uh, our current concept of what a dark energy um, physical field would look like is that it would be present everywhere, you know, throughout the earth. It would just be very, very weak. And only on the largest scales of the universe would be able to see its effect because yeah. gravity being a scale-free force, meaning that it acts equally strongly at all distances, or it has, uh, has this nice inverse square law in, as far as the gravitational acceleration field is concerned. Um, that, uh, that all the other forces would uh, dissipate in, in, in intensity, but this one field at the largest scales in our universe, gravity seems to dominate. And so that's why you'd have that why that's why a field that is nearly homogeneous uh, across the entire universe would dominate the physics on those uh, on those length scales. Yeah, just so. Um, but so 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 that would be the one that I would think possibly would have properties that would uh, be inherently non-local. That would maybe give us some insight into physics that uh, could transmit information faster than it's be like possibly, right? We still know very very little about it. That it that this may not be the case at all. Dark matter seems to be, um, if it is in fact uh, a matter-like field. Uh, a fundamental field. It behaves very much like um, standard matter that we've encountered before, in that it, um, if you were to expand a, uh, say, a box, say if you take a cosmological box of this dark matter, and there was so much inside at one time, uh, at, at some time t1, and via the expansion of the universe, the box would grow in physical size at some time T2, the total amount of matter in that box would stay the same, but the density would scale down as one over the volume, yeah. the, the three-dimensional volume. Uh, that might seem relatively a uh, benign statement, but not everything necessarily behaves like that. Light doesn't behave like that, right? Because if you were to have so much energy density in light and then expand it, not only do you um, have the same number, say you'd have the same number of photons inside that box, but the wavelength of the individual photons would increase with the size of the box. So the energy of the individual photons would go down, meaning that the total energy inside that box would decrease. And the energy okay. density would decrease yeah. faster than with matter. Uh, dark energy, sorry, dark matter, as, as well as we know it, uh, scales more like the former. So it's a, it's a, uh, it seems to behave much like uh, a standard matter field, uh, particularly when we also look at the how it forms structure in the universe. It seems to collapse very similarly to matter. In fact, it's, it's almost the ideal type of matter because it doesn't have all these other interactions, say, with photons, and it's not, uh, it's not giving off a lot of uh, heat or radiation. It's, really key, it's, it's a really well-conserved interaction, which means it's not going... The, uh, the disturbances in the dark matter field, when they collapse, they're not going to collapse as tightly as uh, the matter that you and I are made out of. Right? The you and I are made out of is very sticky. It sticks to itself. It, uh, it really allows for a very tight collapse, which is why the distribution of matter uh, 
the baryonic matter is stuff that you and I are made out of, uh, in, say, simulations of structure formation, indicate that the galaxies are going to collapse to be much smaller than the surrounding halo of dark matter. The halos of dark matter, which are what we call essentially the, gala the galaxy analog in the dark matter world, are going to be much bigger than the visible galaxies which explains those rotation curves. Because even though there's dark matter all throughout the visible part of our galaxy, if this model holds, uh, the distribution of the matter in the dark, uh, the, of the dark matter in its halo is going to extend far beyond our farthest star in our galaxy. And so it's going to look like from the perspective on the scale of our own galaxy, uh, it's going to look like there's just some continuing distribution of matter that just goes on forever, which is going to create this flat rotation curve for our stars. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of a lot of people. I don't. I don't know this how scientific this is. A lot of people who are on psychedelic drugs, they typically make that assertion, and we'll we'll get to the dark matter there. They make this assertion that we are. We are restricted in our in our current you know three dimensional plus time world. And once mm -hmm. you're on this trip, it, a lot of people come back and you know it's it's just a few milligram of, of, of active ingredients. Um, almost well, many people come back. I'd say fifty percent say, well, there is another multi dimensional space. So there is something that is in the same space as we are, right? But it's it's basically in a dimension that we cannot penetrate, that we cannot view, kind of like dark matter a little bit, right? Obviously, this we're talking about slightly more, very different different concepts. Things beyond and, our perception. Right. Our, our normal could, perception. You know, uh, they could be, it's very Huxley, um, they could be, you know, like a dark matter. There is something else out there, but it's, it's, it's the aliens are already, they're, they're, they're they're here already, right? But they're in a different dimension. That dimension very weakly interacts with what we are seeing. But it is um, the, the, the core concept. And I think this is where people are going with this. It's not that we are actually, that the time and space and what we are preserving, that's just one random dimension that we are for some reason, for whatever reason we chose to see. It's actually consciousness that makes the universe. And there is this argument that goes a little further is that without consciousness, without anyone who can feel time, like we can do it, like animals, we, we have the impression they can't feel time. They live in it, but they can't feel it. So without consciousness, it's the singular property that we humans have, which is really strange. If you define it relatively narrow, you can always go further with this. But it, what, what a lot of people make that claim, I don't know how scientific that is, that we actually, that consciousness is that core concept of the universe. And these other dimensions, they're hidden from us, but they're there. And if we could access them, then we would, would see the real universe, so to speak, right? That's kind of how this is strung along. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, there, there's a lot to try and unpack there. Um, maybe I'll ask you a question. Okay, so what constitutes consciousness? Is it human consciousness? Or is there well, some... Is there some ubiquitous consciousness that we're talking about? That's a very good question. I would define it as something where you can feel time is, is passing. 
So it's it's a concept where you realize, well, there is a past, there's a future. It's kind of what we do. We build the simulations and figure out, okay, what are we going to do next and what is our goal? This you don't see in the animal world as much. We call them instincts and we, they can't at least express their version of the future. We can, right? And we've learned how to do this, which seems pretty singular. But that's kind of my, just my understanding. The concept, we can obviously define it bigger and can say, well, anything yeah. that could be conscious and has any point in time. But I feel it's more of an experience, right? So well, what I find so exciting is that without anyone with a consciousness, time doesn't really exist. I mean, to, to the planets, does time really exist without the observer who's conscious? I don't actually know how to answer this. Yeah, I would have some, uh, some difficulty answering this. Well, um, so I, I would say that, yeah, humans are, seem to be uh, unique on our planet in terms of the ability to plan, the ability to uh, have a, a you know, sort of coherence time to um, our concept of reality it allows us to uh, make plans and and see the results thereof and make adjustments based on that but there are uh, there are limitations to that i mean our ability to record uh with uh with high fidelity with uh with even longer time coherence than say our memory uh, has shown us that our memory is not necessarily perfect um, so I, I do have, I would have some questions about what exactly we mean by our concept of the passage of time, because the way I think about it has to do with, in terms of accessing the past, has to do with memory, our, our, how we store previous experience. Um, and, and we found a number of ways to do that, right? Uh, uh, thousands, you know, many years ago before reading and writing and YouTube, uh, we had, uh, you know, you know our, our own local drives to store this on. And it did fairly well. We came up with many different ways to improve on our, uh, on our memory, uh, songs and, and things like that in order to um, improve the coherence time, even many times across generations um, of, of the past and of information. Um, but, and, and, we definitely have this ability to abstract, to imagine what the future will be. But I don't know about you, but I imagine all sorts of different possibilities in the future, and most of them never happen. I'm wrong most of the time, right? I, you find that with, with research, you think, oh, man, I've got this great idea for a warp drive, and, and it's going to work like this, and it's going to require this much energy, and it's going to go this fast, and it's going to require matter with such and such properties that are going to all work out. And then you try it. And, you know, either just by pen and paper via, you know, the mathematics, the underlying mathematics, and it doesn't work. And then you try something else and it doesn't work again. But eventually maybe something does work, but it wasn't necessarily the original concept. So we can't perfectly predict the future. We can't, we, it, we're becoming better at remembering the past. Um, but in terms of, yeah, this, uh, some some idea of underlying consciousness, uh, you know, encoding the concept of time. Uh, 
it, well, it would have to be a simulation it, argument, right? It, it's kind of like, it does. It does. It, it seems it does. also weirdly aligned, right? This, we you can only consciousness can really find time as a, as a, they're really intensely connected. You, whatever the real connection is, and then the speed of light. Some, it, it, you know, you you will probably say, well, right. that's another very human centric approach. But that's a lot of coincidences that, that I see there. And they only happen at the last, whatever, 40, 50,000 You mean, you mean it, the, the constraint of the speed of light? Yeah. Well, it's, okay. it goes a long time, right? So, so light and time are so, so, the speed of light and time are so intertangled. In our current concept of the universe, yeah. But it's also possible that uh, just as uh, 100 years ago, we didn't necessarily see that connection. It may be that that may not, may not be the complete connection. There may be something even more fundamental to our concept that we can, uh, well, I hope, because I, I oftentimes have an easier way uh, of, uh, of understanding it if, if there's some technical explanation, if there's some way that you can uh, precisely express, you know, oftentimes via math, um, how, uh, you know, a... a, a, a a mechanism for how the universe operates that's more accurate than what we have. Because it, it may be that, right, this concept of space and time, they're all just very nice markers that allow us to conceptualize, that they're really just abstractions of human beings to uh, make order of, of chaos, right? Even these concepts, these words that are coming out of my mouth are, are examples of that, right? The concept of chaos. Um, but it, but yeah, this is this has gotten us very far. Just like you know, the, the various other ways that we uh, stumble around to to try and understand the universe. But is is something closer? Is something more accurate? This uh, this concept of of consciousness, of of uh, some ubiquitous consciousness uh, via a simulation or or some other um, some other system. Uh, that's yeah. that, that's a good question. Uh, I I'm not smart enough to understand it, but I feel like <laughs> there is there is too many coincidences in our current theory. I mean, it's 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 too the pieces fall too much into place. And I think there's something else out there, but again, I don't know the answer to it, so I can only answer the yeah. question. I'm definitely not smart enough to understand it and come up with the unifying theory. I think that's but because of quantum theory and the esoterics that it introduces to this nice neat model. I think people are longing for this, and a lot of people have been working on this and made good progress, but so far we have nothing that gives us new predictions, right? This is what a model mm -hmm. needs. It makes better predictions than the old one, at least in one subset of predictions, right? It's, it, it, it's like Newtonian mechanics. It will not replace it. It will just go into a different sphere. And, uh, and, uh, right, it'll, it'll sphere. have a larger context or, or whatever the case yeah. may be. Yeah, galaxy-wide. Yeah. Galaxy-wide and... travel. That's what we want to <laughs> That's how hopefully your next white paper. How do we jump to the next galaxy? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, at this point, I just want to see if I can build one of these uh, things even in small scale. Yes, build up to yes. it. Do you think but, that's possible? Uh, can you do running some experiments? Do you think that's, that's doable at all? Well, I, I think uh, still there's an, uh, an amount of theoretical work that needs to be done first. Uh, like, as I've mentioned uh, throughout the conversation, uh, I need to nail down a mechanism for creating and accelerating one of these things, right? Right now, all of them have just existed, right? The, the, uh, the, the way that they've been presented is that they existed ad infinitum. They've always been there. They will always be there. 
Uh, but that's not really uh, physical and not very helpful from an experimental point of view. But you, if you can find a way, a mechanism to create one of these things, uh, and if you can find a way to make it uh, energetically efficient enough that you could create one in a lab strong enough to be detected by some instrument, uh, then we have the makings of, uh, of an experimental verification. But those yeah. two elements need to come, uh, need to be uh, completed first. Uh, which, which are things that I'm, are, uh, are very much on my mind right now, because I would like to see this, um, I, I, would, I would like to see experimental verification or, um, or evidence that uh, the path that I'm on is, uh, you know, is faulty for some reason. That, uh, that maybe up, I'm mistaken. No, you got to call up Robert Zubrin. You know, he's he's been writing the book on the case for space, and he's been working on ways how we can actually get anywhere and on in a solar system and beyond. And he he need details at what we need to do this, and he he would love to. You know, I, I think he will he would love that theory and and would probably give a lot to make it happen. Oh, okay. Well, I'll put you two in touch. Well, I'll put you two in well, touch. Let's see what happens. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I would, uh, that, that, <laughs> at, very, at very least, it would be a very exciting conversation. Yeah, um, I, I think so, too. I think so, too. But I would very much right. like to see that happen. Yeah. Same here, uh, same here. Thanks for this update. I hope it's going to work out, and then a couple of years, you, you come back and you say, well, we just built this thing, and uh, why don't you try it out? That would be my <laughs> hope. <laughs> oh, all right, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. That was awesome. Thanks for all the insight. Yeah, thanks again for the invitation. It was a very interesting exciting conversation i was glad we were able to make it happen thank you i'm looking forward to next time all right take it yes. easy yes you too bye bye